Lord, as we gather as your people, we are grateful. Uh, We are grateful that we can gather physically. We know there's still churches that aren't able to do that yet, and everything is online, and we're grateful for the tools that are available, that this happened at a time in history when we could actually do things via the internet, and we are grateful. But Lord, we thank you that we can also gather in person, either in smaller groups or in places like this or in even larger groups. Because it's when we gather as your people in the name of Jesus that it's like you amplify everything we offer up. You multiply our praises. You multiply the smiles and the encouragement we get from that. You, mo- you multiply the things that move our hearts and minds towards you to fix our eyes on you, and we need that. So it, it's extra hard when you're sick and unable to come or you're staying home to protect another loved one because they're vulnerable or more vulnerable. And so, Lord, we hurt for them. And right now we pray for them. We pray for encouragement. We pray for healing. We pray for peace. We pray for, for perspective. And all the other things that are needed whether you're the one that's sick or the one that's taking care of them or the one that's protecting them or all of the above. Lord, um, there are folks in the room that have ailments and issues and um, hurts, long-term and short-term. We lift up these as well. You are the great physician. You are the one who heals. Yes, sometimes through doctors and medicines and sometimes just because of your touch and instantaneous healing. We give you glory for all healing And we know that one day you will completely heal all of us and take us home. Lord, those that who know you, those that are your your faithful. Um, But Lord, in the meantime, we pray for the grace to endure the pain and suffering that is coming our way. May we remember that this suffering, you tell us in your word, that in perspective of eternity, it is a momentary suffering. Lord, we have a hard time getting our brains around that because it doesn't feel momentary in the moment. But Lord, knowing that you could show up today and the rest of eternity would take off in a new way, God, we just pray that you would give us the grace in the meantime to endure, to persevere, to persist in doing what it is you've called us to do regardless of how we feel. May we be wise in how we handle those things and how we handle others. May we be quick to give grace to others regardless of how they see the things that we're dealing with and how to deal with those things. We have different perspectives. We have different information. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would show each other a lot of grace. We don't need to compound the hurts with attitudes that are lacking grace. So I thank you, God, for those who are just really good at that. And may that become contagious. Lord, I pray for our kids that are about to go to their groups. I pray they have a great time. But more importantly, I pray that they see Jesus in their teachers, that they would think that they're being taught by Jesus' mom because that's all they can talk about. Because it's all about you. It's why we worship you. And Lord, as we look at your word today in Revelation 19, you answer that question, why do we worship Jesus again? And you tell us and you give us more and more reasons to do so on a cosmic level, on an astronomical scale. So Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and a desire to submit gladly to you as we learn what that feels like. Come Holy Spirit, fill this place. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Kids, you can go. Young kids. Grade school down. We are in Revelation. We're working through this series called The Best is Yet to Come. We have, this is week 28. I just, I don't, I don't do long series until Revelation. um, And I had no idea it was going to end up being this long, but uh, I'm grateful that um, God has continued to, to guide and direct me and help me learn along the way um, because I'm, I feel like I'm learning right alongside of you as we do this. So it's been fun. Um, but we're on the final stretch. We're in the last section. Uh, first section, Jesus and his churches. It's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 16 is Jesus' throne room and Jesus' judgments. And that's a big chunk of the book, and it is not pretty. 
okay? But we are out of that, and we are into 17 to the end, which is, here's, here's the, the themes, the whore, the king, and his bride. Colorful language from a colorful book. Um, today we will focus on 19, and next week we'll finish 19, and we're answering the question, why do we worship Jesus? Why do we worship Jesus? In 19, I'm sorry, in 1888, um, Alfred Nobel, the originator of the Nobel Peace Prize, his brother died, his brother Ludwig. Well, when Ludwig died, the newspaper thought it was Alfred, and the obituary showed up as Alfred's obituary instead of Ludwig. So Alfred got to read his own obituary. Well, he was not happy about what he read. Here's what was written. The merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Yes, he invented dynamite. He was a weapons manufacturer, a chemist, an engineer, and an innovator. And when he read that obituary, he was devastated, as you can imagine. And it changed his purpose in life. And he went from being a weapons creator, and I don't know what he did after, but he was very, very wealthy. And so he set aside in his will so that when he died, the equivalent of $250 million would be set aside to fund the prizes that are given to those who win Nobel Peace Prizes. Because he wanted to make the world a better place, and he wanted to be known as someone who made the world a better place through the monies he had earned, through the weapons he had created, and the inventions that he had made. So his, little, his purpose in life changed. His little, I'll, I'll use it, little p purpose. His purpose in life changed. Now, we all have a purpose in life. Okay? Everything that is created in this world has a purpose in life, whether it's created by God or a person. We create things on purpose for a purpose. We may not always know why, but there's usually some motivating purpose behind it. What I would really like you to think about is what is your capital P purpose? And that really will get us to answering the question, why do we worship Jesus? So um, let's think about this for a second. So you can, this question can mean several different things when we ask the question, what do we mean by Jesus? Well, let me just give you the bottom line and then I think I can help you with this. The bottom line today is we worship Jesus because of who he is and because of what he's done. And specifically, we'll dive into the two issues that this passage gives us, which is the wrath that is poured out on Babylon and the wedding with the bride. I think there's a little too much gain still. We're getting a little distortion when I get amped up, and I think I might today. So thank you. I appreciate it. I think I'm not the only one hearing that. Awesome. So let's, let's, with that, let me, let me define what we mean when we say, why do we worship Jesus? So when I say worship Jesus, we're not saying worship Jesus instead of God. We believe that Jesus is God, and he was God in the flesh as the second person of the Trinity. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, but it's basically the three roles expressing who God is and what he does, which is why we worship him. So when we focus on Jesus, why would we do that except that that's what we see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit pointing to? It's almost like the three parts of God, these three roles are pointing, two of them are pointing at Jesus going, he's the face of God we want you to see. And that, actually, that kind of makes sense if you think about it. When God said, I'm going to show up in person, who did he send? Right? He sent his son, Jesus. So it makes sense uh, in that regard. But also, Jesus is called the king. He is referred to as the Lord. He is the one that Scripture kind of, again, points the, the lens at, if you will, to say, when you try to picture God, look at Jesus. And now, and when you get to Revelation, it's not just look at Jesus. It's look at the risen Jesus, not the Jesus before the cross. Look at the Jesus who died on the cross and who rose from the grave after that, defeating sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. You see? So, Scripture points us to worship Jesus as a means to worshiping God, all of God. And Jesus is fully God, just like the Holy Spirit is fully God and God the Father is fully God. They are all equal 
equally God. They're all equally valuable, but they divide up the roles a little bit, right? The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. That was the Son of God. Um, God the Father sent the Son, not the Holy Spirit. So you can see they have different roles. The Holy Spirit was the Spirit of Christ that worked in and around Jesus when he was here and works in and amongst the people of God as the body of Christ now. So you can see, and we read, this is why it's kind of confusing, right? When you read through the Bible, it's like, well, it calls the Holy Spirit God over here, and over here we're praying to Jesus, and over here we're praying to God the Father. It's kind of confusing. It's because the Trinity is so massive trying to describe a God that we can't comprehend with human words and our pitiful language. Of course it's going to be confusing. It's understandable, and yet it's logical. It makes sense. It's just, I think, in some cases, supra-logical, which means more than I can understand. It's like an ant trying to understand the internet. It's possible to be understood. It's just not possible for the ant to understand it. Does that make sense? Supra logic. Okay. And I think there's lots of things about the Bible and scripture and theology that are supra logical. And that doesn't mean that no one will ever understand them. It just means most of us won't understand them to the depth that says, I comprehend that because God is God. And if we can comprehend God, then either we're God too, or we just are clueless and think we can comprehend who he is. So when we talk about this passage, why do we worship Jesus? I mean, Jesus, I mean, um, I got Gene and Jesus confused. How about that? Gene set the table for us when he started talking about the massive size of the cosmos. And, you know, you think about that and we're like, man, I feel really small. Well, you know how small you feel after he said those things? That's how small the universe is in God's hand, which is really personification because God's infinitely bigger than that. And so you realize, wow, the cosmos are there to massively impact our, our, our idea of how big God is. And yet, that's just scratching the surface of how big God is. He's incomprehensible in all of his attributes, not just his size. And that's where we start to see what's going to happen here. Now, what's going to happen here is that, the, that John is going to reveal how God is giving us reasons to worship, why God is giving us reasons to worship Jesus. And, and he's going to use these two what look like very unlikely reasons, or at least they, they're weird reasons, I think. But when you hear why, I think you're going to understand, okay, and it's going to help you sing better when we sing praises. Not just here, but in the shower, or in the car ride, or whenever you get alone with God and his word. It's going to help you worship him through what you do for a living. And you're going to realize, I can worship God, whether I'm a nurse or a trash collector or a banker or a construction worker or a teacher or whatever. I can worship God doing that just as well as I can when I'm gathered here. Now, there's a different dynamic when we gather. Again, I think God amplifies everything that happens in this room that, that brings praises to him. And that's part of the reason why he calls the church the gathered people of God. But, but he also works through the scattered church, so I don't want to minimize that. So, so let's jump, jump in here to 19, and, and we're just going to do 10 verses today. And I want you to see these two reasons. Why do we worship Jesus? We worship Jesus for who he is and what he's done, specifically the wrath that he poured out on Babylon and the wedding he, he initiates for the bride. Okay, And we'll get into who those characters are and remind you of that. John writes, verse 1, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. So there's a great multitude in heaven. Um, it could include humans. It certainly includes the angels. Okay, There's a, an angelic mass of, of awesome angels in heaven who love to glorify God. And they are there to serve at his bidding. And they shout, hallelujah. Now I want to shout it, but we're amplified here, so I'm going to spare you but hallelujah now most of us probably don't know exactly what that word means better you understand that that word means the better you'll do it okay so here's what the word is it's a breakdown of two words hallel and yah so gene told you that there's a nebula with a nickname the tarantula nebula well did you know that god has a nickname and his nickname is yah which is short for Yahweh. Hallelujah. Halle, hallel means praise. It actually means you praise. It's an exhortation to praise. Who are we praising? Yahweh. 
Now, who's Yahweh? Yahweh is Jesus in the Old Testament. Yahweh is Lord in the Old Testament. Jesus is Lord in the New Testament. Two different names for the second person of the Trinity. It's the personal names of God. It's as personal as God can get. It's like he knows, he doesn't just know your name that I know. He knows your name that he's given you. Kind of a heart name. You know how Jesus went up to Peter, or he was Simon, and he changed his name. Okay, well, I don't know if he's going to do that for us. I don't know. But there seems to be another name. And I, I don't know how that works. I'm not pointing to a verse. This is me spitballing, okay? So just kind of take it with a grain of salt. But God knows you so well that he knows you're the name that captures who you are better than any other name. And he uses that name. And that's how we know when he speaks. Through the filter of his word and the help of his Holy Spirit, when he speaks, we know it's, he's speaking to me because he knows how to speak to you in a way that communicates to you, okay? Hallelujah. This is praise the Lord is how we oftentimes say it, but even more personally, the Lord is Jesus. So we would say simply praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Say hallelujah with me. Hallelujah. Say it again. Hallelujah. Again, hallelujah. Louder. Hallelujah. Praise him one more time. Hallelujah. Jesus, we praise you today with our voices through a shout. Now, imagine that on a volume that would blow out your eardrums, except that you have supernatural eardrums that don't blow out. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Anybody here ever been? Raise your hand if you've been to Niagara Falls. Okay. Of those of you who have been to Niagara Falls, how many of you got in the boat and, and went down at the bottom. Some of y'all did, okay? So I was at Niagara Falls as a middle schooler. I didn't get to get in the boat, and I was very disappointed. Except that I did notice they all had these long yellow raincoats. Did y'all have to wear those rain? Because it's like so, the, the mist from the falls is so thick, it will soak your clothing unless you're wearing a raincoat. And so this boat goes down, and it, it looks like a little toy boat in a bathtub. When you look down at the bottom of these massive waterfalls, it's like a curtain of water dumping millions and millions of gallons of water every second. Thunderous sounds. And that's kind of what I hear even later when it says that uh, the voice sounds like rushing waters. So, so hallelujah, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Our God, personal, our God. John is saying this. It's ours as in those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God, it's personal, and we are his. And he's going to unpack that in the second part. Salvation, glory, and power. I can't unpack these two in a lot of detail to, other than to say I want to, I want to spend a second on salvation. Salvation, okay, we're being saved from sin and death, shame and guilt, and hell itself. Okay? My, I think I've figured out what my favorite animated Disney movie is. Okay? And I think... Oh, i got to save that for later. Um, I'm going to say cliffhanger. Teaser, okay? That's for the second part. Okay, but it does have to do with salvation because we are rescued, okay? And it's not the rescuers. We are rescued, all right, from all those things, and God is our rescuer. So, but God is the one who initiates that. He gives us uh, what we need to hear, the word, to see him as we need to see him, and then he even gives us the faith to believe once we're ready to believe. But what he doesn't give us, other than the ability, is he doesn't give us, he doesn't make us believe. He gives us the will, he literally gives us the ability to push back. Okay? So salvation, somehow, super logic again, somehow God in his sovereignly chooses and draws people, and at the same time, he gives us the freedom to receive it, to delay it, maybe even deny it. I, I don't fully understand. God is somehow able to be as involved as we need him to be to make it possible for us to be saved. We can't be saved unless he makes it possible. And yet he doesn't steal away our freedom. I don't know how it all fits together. I just know the Bible teaches both and that because God is God, they can fit together. And I'll just be the little ant and know the internet must work, but I don't understand it and I'll never understand it. Okay. And that's okay. Salvation, it's one of the reasons we, we worship him. And where are we saved from? 
This is where Babylon comes in. So if you remember, we've talked about Babylon as a symbol. It goes back to the first Tower of Babel where where humanity tries to be God. We try to build our own temples and stand at the top so that people will adore us because it's all about us. That's kind of our our default mentality. That's why we're selfish. It's why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to lie and cover their own tracks and, and, and all the negative things that they do. All those little wicked things that we think are so cute because they're small and young and innocent. Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's wicked. It's still because it's the source. It's the same source. We sin because we're born sinners, and that's, that's why we sin. Salvation is, is that gift that God makes possible, and it, makes, it gives us reason to worship him. Okay? But there's more. He says it's glory. Now, again, another word we use but don't really know what it means. Glory is the sum of God's attributes, okay? He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnibenevolent, which means he's all-good. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, everywhere at the same time in this moment and every moment that has ever been and every moment in the future because he's everywhere because time is like this to him. He's immutable, which means unchanging, and perfection doesn't change, which is why he doesn't change. And so he's also perfect. He's true, holy, and he is love. Now, if that doesn't get your attention and realize, wow, I am none of that. That's amazing. I should be worshiping him, and I probably should be embarrassing myself I'm worshiping him so much right now, except that I want to... I'm in public, <laughs> but right, we should, we should be like trembling with, wow, he's awesome, and I am not, <laughs> except that he treasures me. He knows how many heads, hairs are on my head. He knows how many heads you have, too. And he knows what you've done and thought in the past. He knows what you're thinking right now, and he still loves you, no matter who you are, no matter what you're thinking because he is grace, because he is love. God, we worship him, hallelujah, because of his salvation and his glory. And so the, we can't see those attributes really, right? We can't see God and we can't see the attributes. But, but glory is actually a description of light. Moses goes up to the mountain and God doesn't show his face, but God shows his backside, which I think is kind of fun. It's like the first mooning of, of, of the world or something. I don't know. But God in his, I don't mean that in last, I don't mean that in disrespect. I just think it's funny. And I think God created humor and, and a sense of humor, even though mine's bad. But you see what I'm saying, right? Light. And so what happens when Moses comes down, he's, he's, been, he's been glorified by God and he comes down he's shining his face is glowing that's the glory of God it's like it's like pixie dust it's like God kind of rubbed off on him for a minute and so for a while he's got so much shining that's freaking everybody else out down he's got to wear some look like a beehive mask kind of mask the glow (laughs) glory is tangible in the sense that it's light and I think we'll see it when we're in his presence. And yet, I don't think we have to see it. I just think glory is something that's meant to be seen. And the way you and I reflect God is glorious. So when you and I smile with the love of Jesus in our heart to someone, you are reflecting or radiating the glory of God in that moment. And when you tell the truth in a moment where you're tempted to tell a lie, God is glorified in that moment because you leveraged by faith the power he gave you to tell the truth when you didn't want to tell the truth. And when we sing praises to him and our minds are actually stayed on him because we recognize he created the cosmos and, he, and we're speck of dust in that cosmos and yet he knows my name and he knows how many hairs are on my head and he cares about me and he died for me, we re- start to realize we can radiate that glory. And, and so, hallelujah. Now, think about this. We're limited. Our brains are, are working at about 5%. Okay? So when I say you're clueless, it's not personal. Okay? I'm clueless too. But in heaven, there's going to be 100% again because Adam and Eve started there, right? Sin wasn't in the world, so they had full capacities, amazing IQs, and, and just incredible perspectives. And I bet you they were the most creative, amazing people ever to walk the planet until sin came and clouded everything and corrupted everything. And that's why we have the world we have. But this is not forever. This is just for a season the season that we're in, unfortunately, we're in it in some ways, and fortunately, that we get to know the best is yet to come. And then his power. And I don't have, I, I don't have time, so I'm just going to remind us, salvation, glory, and power. But just remember, this is not just power like we think of power. This is power in a manner that we, we really struggle to comprehend. It's supernatural power, which we, don't, we tend to think God doesn't do that anymore. 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're his. They're his to use. They're his to give. They're his to share to his people. For true and just are his judgments. True and just. How about that? Wouldn't we like judges who are consistently and faithfully true and just in all their judgments? We would never have someone on death row that shouldn't be there. Okay? And maybe we would never have anybody on death row. Maybe we would, and it would be totally justified. But the point is, if we had judges who were consistently just and true, we wouldn't complain about the judicial system in the courtroom anyway. But we don't. But he is. And it's a good thing because he judges. He, will, and he judges and will judge all of us. And he disciplines us for his kids, and he punishes those who aren't. And he, but he does it because he wants repentance on all accounts, his kids and those who aren't. He is condemned. Now, here's where his justice is on display here and now. This is why, again, hallelujah. Why? Because he judges the whore that is Babylon. And Babylon represents, okay, all in our world, all the, the historical, um, all the religious and, and societal garbage that has surfaced since the fall of Adam and Eve. Okay? Sometimes it's systemic, and it, sometimes it's led by organizations. Sometimes it's led by religions. But it's, it's all these different institutions, formal and otherwise, that point people away from and anywhere but to the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, this is in addition to the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're going to be dealt with in chapter 19 and 20. Okay? But the, the Babylonian whore was dealt with, we saw in chapter 18. It was mentioned in 16. Babylon has fallen. We rejoice. Hallelujah. And this is in the future, future history we're talking about. Babylon's still alive and well in, in America. Am I, am I right in our world, right? Okay? And we can point to major examples of that in history like Pharaoh and Egypt. And we can look at the different kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's not always just governments, it's religions and all those things, like I said. But the point is that Jesus defeats the whore. Okay? The bad news is that most of the world chases her instead of the bride. Most of the world chooses the whore over the bride. She costs you, whereas the bride is for free. She offers cheap imitations of what the bride brings for free. What God offers is it truly satisfies. And what the whore offers, maybe for a moment, and then you realize it was all an illusion. So when heaven sees, because remember, in heaven, they're watching this drama unfold, right? Their Netflix series, they have one Netflix series in heaven, and it's called History. World History, Planet Earth. And they're watching it unfold. And they know there's an episode, there's a last episode. They know that before sin is dealt with. And it's chapter 19, 16, 17, 18, 19. It's all that when Jesus shows back up and then there's a new season. And the new season is there's no more sin. There's no more Babylon. There's no more enemy. There's no more darkness. I shouldn't have picked Netflix. I should have picked something better. Okay, anyway, you get the idea. So, um, so hallelujah, right? Now, condemned the prostitute for who corrupted the earth by her adultery. Spiritual adulteries is a phrase the Bible uses to say you've been unfaithful to God. It's, a, it's imagery, more imagery. Israel was accused of being spiritual adulterers lots of times. And we read it and we go, yeah, you spiritual adulterers. And God goes, it's a mirror. Remember, you're reading a mirror, not just a window. Oh, yeah, the church is spiritually adultering too. Okay, and anytime we're unfaithful to God, we are too. Babylon is the one who tempts and that is the one he's dealt with. She is dealt with and judged because of her corrupting us. And we give in and we have to take responsibility. And for the blood spilt. So here it says, he, that is the Lord Jesus, has avenged on her, that is Babylon, the blood of his servants. Who are his servants that he's referring to here? Chapter 6, the martyrs under the throne. It's those who have died. It's those that are dying in Afghanistan to the Taliban before their faith in Jesus Christ. It's those who die, and their witness is not only in life, but in death. Christian witness, a Christian martyr, is someone who is witness to the end of their lives. 
And that's what he calls all of us to. And that's why we need to be praying for them because they would say, maybe get me out. But some of them are saying, I'm staying. Pray for me to be faithful and to not betray my Lord. And so we need to be praying for brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Iran in particular. But there's, there's dozens of countries where it's illegal to be a Christian and it's dangerous and even more than that. So then he says this, and again they shouted, so hallelujah. You realize hallelujah is in the New Testament only four times. Four times the word shows up, and they're all in this chapter, which should tell us when we're talking about worship, chapter 19 is one of the places we go in the New Testament because hallelujah is not used throughout. Now you can go back to the Old Testament and find it in the Psalms, especially Psalm 113 through 118. And these are called the Hallel, appropriately, the Hallel Psalms, and they are sung before, during, and after the Passover, which is a celebration of the Exodus, which is when God sent Moses and they had the 10 plagues and he delivered, let my people go, and he leads them out. Okay? And they have the Passover lamb at the 10th plague, which is a foreshadowing of another lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see how it all fits together? This is one story. One story. And the, and, and, and the angels in heaven and, this, and the beings in heaven are going... I'm on the edge of my seat. This has got to end well. This can't, oh, this, this is terrible, all that we're, they're seeing. And yet, we're living through it. And, and yet, the best is yet to come. Again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That is the smoke from Babylon. Babylon will be defeated. And though we may all give our lives in the, in the wake of Babylon, Babylon eventually will go up in smoke. And that's good news. And that's worthy of an amen and a hallelujah. Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, notice these are the four, these are the 28 beings closest to the throne. So you have God the Father on the throne, God the, the Son, the Jesus, the Lamb of God who's been slain but is alive, cross and resurrection, right next to him. And then you have the 24 elders and the four living beings. This is what they say. Amen. Hallelujah. So they're, they're right there with, they're like, yes, this is absolutely what we need to see. Then a voice came from the throne. So this must be God saying, praise our God. All, and it could, it could be another being there. I don't know. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. God is no respecter of persons. That means he, he values all people the same, treasures all people the same. Okay unless you differentiate between those, he's, those he knows are his and those who never will be. Those who fear him, okay? Fear and revere. Those rhyme and they go together because they work together to understand how we are to approach God. And then it says this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, okay? Well, we've, that's kind of what's already been happening. Here it is again. Like the roar of rushing waters, think Niagara Falls, think the ocean, uh, like loud peals of thunder. Think that thunderstorm that you've remembered that was right over the house and it was so loud that the pictures on the wall rattled and the, and the whole yard lit up at night. Thunder, peals of thunder, shouting. This crowd is shouting again, hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Why are they praising Jesus now? This is, this is where I get to my favorite Disney movie, okay? I think my favorite Disney movie is Tangled, okay? And here's why. All right, it's the story of Rapunzel and the tower and the mile long of hair, right? And also we watched it a lot in my house in the years that it was out. But just, I, and, and Flynn Rider, Rapunzel and Flynn Rider, okay? And, and what happens in the story, right? She's in this, she's a prisoner and doesn't even realize it because she's being lied to by her evil stepmother, I guess, I, mom, I'm not quite sure, some evil lady who's like really a witch or whatever. And she, anyway, she's lying to her, and so she's trapped in this castle, and um, she's kind of clueless too at the moment, and, and she doesn't understand because she's been lied to. And so Flynn Rider finds her, and he realizes we've got to rescue her. And she realizes she needs to be rescued. And so the whole adventure of her being rescued. And Flynn Rider, imperfect though he is, perseveres. And sorry, it's old enough to, this is a spoiler alert. So, you know, but it's been out a while, right? And he rescues her. He risks his life to rescue her. And he beats down the thugs. And he beats down or deals with the witch or whatever she is. And rescues Rapunzel. What's her name in the movie? Is it Rapunzel in the movie? She's got a name, right? It is Rapunzel. And rescues her, and he marries her. 
And they lived happily ever after. She now knows who she really is. She's a princess. And they release lights into the sky. And it's, it's beautiful. It's like, wow, you could put that in Revelation 23 if you wanted to. That's really awesome. It's a picture. And, and just think about this. Side note, every great story in our world is a dim reflection of the story. Okay? Tangled just gets a little closer than a lot of them. Why? Because we see we see, in this case, an imperfect person who risks his life to rescue the princess, to set her free from the lies so that they can live and she can live uh, as she was created to live, as a princess, okay? Now, look at the story of God, right? He calls the church the bride of Christ. And who's the groom but Jesus himself? And who is coming back on a charger, on a horse, as a conquering king to rescue his bride? And he doesn't just risk his life. He gives his life, has given his life on the cross so that that's possible. So that we can live happily ever after in a real heaven in a real new heaven and new earth as we were intended to, where the lies fall away and the truth is there and the light is abundant. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And we, get, we watch that movie and we tear up and we're excited and we cheer and we laugh and it's like, it's just a taste of reality. Okay? We need to think about that as we read this. Watch this. Then I heard, like I said, what sounded like, hallelujah, for the God, Lord God Almighty reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Lamb is Jesus, the bride, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So in Jesus' day, this is how they did weddings, roughly. So the, the proposed or the proposing groom, potential groom, goes, leaves his father's house, important words, goes to the potential bride's father's house, and they negotiate to purchase her. Okay, I know how that goes in America. That's not real cool language, but I'm just telling you how it was. He, and and the deal, they, they work out a deal, okay, an arranged marriage, okay? Yeah, this is really popular. I'm not, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just saying this is the way they did it in the days of Jesus, okay? And um, they would seal the deal with a cup of wine, and they would say, drink this as a sealing of the new covenant. Okay? Covenant, not just a contract, covenant. And that they're going to be legally married after you leave, even though you're not going to be, you're not going to live together for 12 months. Okay? That's called the betrothal. We might think engagement. This is way more than that. It's legally binding. They are legally married. If he dies during the betrothal, she's a widow officially. If if there's some reason for divorce, uh, for them not to get married, it just requires a divorce. That's how binding, legally binding, yet they're not living together. Now, he then leaves, she stays, and for the next 12 months, she prepares to be his bride, she prepares for the wedding, she prepares for the marriage, and he prepares a place for her, for them to live. All right, he starts building a new room onto his dad's house, and that's where they're going to live. You hear the language? You hear the New Testament in this? John, I didn't give you guys this verse, these verses. John 14, is that right? John 14, 1 through 3, and then I'm going to go to John 17. Keep up if you can. All right, John 14 is written by the same guy that, wrote the vision, that writes the vision of the Revelation, John, one of the 12 disciples. In these verses, Jesus is speaking to the 12 minus Judas. He's just left to betray him. He's going to be arrested this very night. He's saying these words that he'll be crucified the next day. He says, do not let, he says to his disciples, who he has also just to told, I'm leaving and you can't go where I'm going. So they're distraught. They've been following him for three years and, they, and, and it's all hell's about to break loose on earth right there. And, and they feel it, and they're distraught, and this is what he says to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. 
If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? You hear him speaking to his bride? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Do you hear that? Jesus is the groom and he's speaking to his bride. He's speaking to the disciples. He's like, I am not abandoning you. I'm going away for a season and I'm gonna come back after I've prepared a place for you, okay? Same language as they would have said in those days when there was a wedding, a Judean wedding, okay? Verse, chapter 17, verse 24. Okay, so that's a promise, right? Uh, Verse 24. That's a promise. I'm preparing a place for you. So I don't know how you feel about your security of your salvation, but Jesus would say to you if he were here, if you were questioning your salvation, first of all, if you're questioning your salvation, that's a good sign. It means you probably have one to question. He would say, I'm preparing a place for you. I keep my promises. I've already proposed. I've already, it won't be offensive this time, I've already purchased you with my blood. Do you see it? It's not intended to demean women. It's intended to be a picture of what he's doing to us and for us through the cross, okay? That may be the only reason there was ever such a thing as arranged weddings, is to make that point. Because why? Because marriage, the purpose of marriage, the number one purpose of marriage is not to make babies, Okay, it's not to create the family, as important as those things are. It is to show us the relationship. It's an image of the relationship between Jesus and his people. Groom, bride. Okay, that's good. And our marriages should reflect that. You see how the groom waited? Didn't live with her during that betrothal period. He waited because her purity matters to him. She's not just his future bride. I mean, let's think about it. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Longer than we'll be married, even though we may know each other, and I think we will know each other very, very well in heaven. Okay, I think we'll recognize each other. I think we'll know, we'll enjoy, we'll, we'll have reunions, and it'll be awesome. But we won't be married in heaven because we're already married, not to a person, because we were married to the groom who is Jesus. So Jesus is not a polygamist, sorry. Polygamist, it's not a biblical thing. All right, so verse 24 in chapter 17. Father, this is a part of Jesus's prayer. The whole chapter is a prayer. And this is, he's praying this about all believers. Father, I want those you have given me, that's us in Christ as well as these disciples. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Where is he going to be? He's going to be at the Father's side. And to see my glory, like Moses got to, we're going to get moon too. And the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Okay? This is his prayer. We saw a promise of Jesus. Now we see the prayer of Jesus. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus knows the will of God? probably knows to pray the will of God. Do you think that God always, the Father always answers God the Son's prayers? Probably every single time. So he's praying for us. You can rest in his security, okay? Even though you, you and I are tempted to feel insecure. All right, sorry, back to Revelation. Let's lay in this plane. Let's see if I can find where I was. Verse, uh, okay. Verse, okay, so we talked about the wedding of the Lamb has come. I'm back to verse 7. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and and his bride has made herself ready. So the bride has made herself ready. It tells her how. She's wearing fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Notice the tense. (laughs) Look at me being an English teacher. How ironic. Okay, was given, passed, as good as done. Okay? That means that the bride was given the ability to wear those garments. That means God provides provides his people all that we need to do the rest of that verse, to live righteous acts of God. So how do you and I prepare for our groom? How do we prepare for Jesus' return? We, We embrace the ability and power that God has given us through his spirit and through his word and through his people to live out these righteous acts fully and faithfully. 
Okay? He's given us, he's called us to do it, and he's empowered us to do it. So whose court is the ball in? Our court, okay? Um, let me read the rest, and then I'm going to take you to, I'm going to give you a heads up, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We're going to end there. Then the angel said to me, write this. Here's another beatitude in Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay? You're invited if you're in Christ. Well, actually, you're all invited. Just not everybody will accept the invitation. Have you? You receive an invitation. It's got your, you, here it is. It's right here. It's written down. Your name is on the invitation. The question is, will you open it? Will you receive it? Will you make it yours? Will you go? Will you show up? And will you be dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, that's given to you and provided for you? Will you wear it? Will you wear the righteous acts that you have been empowered to live? Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And, and he added, these are the true words of God. And then there's this little thing tagged onto the end. It's just kind of funny, but it's instructive. At this, John says, I fell at his feet. Whose feet? Who's talking? Then a voice came from the throne, apparently saying, praise our God. So when I said originally that was God, actually not. It's somebody really close to the some created being really close to the throne, I think, because it says, at this I fell at his feet to worship him. Well, we know it's an angel because he's going to tell us. Sorry. At this I fell at his feet to worship. Whose feet? The angel. What angel? Let me show you. But he said to, the, he said to me, don't do that. Okay? So John is so overwhelmed with worship. He's hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. He is, falls on his face before this being because he's just in the moment. And the being says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's either an angel, angelic being, or maybe, I don't think, but it could be uh, a redeemed person. Okay, But regardless, it's a created being who says, we're servants of the Lord Jesus together. We don't worship each other. Okay, Worship God application worship God and his name is Jesus his personal name hallelujah is Jesus what does the word Jesus mean again the Lord is my salvation the Lord saves for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus and no I don't really understand what that means but I can take away as a result for because it is the spirit of prophecy the words of God that bears testimony to Jesus. He is the one that reveals Jesus to us. Okay, maybe I do. I don't know. That's, that's in the ballpark. Philippians 2. And let's end there. Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the city called Philippi. This is a letter to the Christians that gather there, the church of Philippi. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is going to tease out that piece I was referring to where he dresses us in linen, and yet he calls us to live the linen dressing, okay? It's this tension between, wait a minute, am I supposed to do it or is God supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do these righteous acts so that God will invite me to the wedding or does God empower me to do these righteous acts and so I do them out of gratitude? This is what he says in, um, in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That may not be exactly word for word. That's the version I remember. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, continue to work out your salvation. That's us taking responsibility for our actions and doing acts of righteousness, righteous acts, deeds. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to your good, his good purpose. He empowers you, and we end with the word purpose. How beautiful is that? And I didn't plan that, okay? How cool is that, right? Albert no Nobel, new purpose in life. Very few people get a chance to see their obituary and change the way their life is going. He did, and we get a chance too, because it could be that God has, has bothered you today like he did Alfred, in such a way that you realize the path I'm on is not leading to glory to God. It's leading to all about me. And, and you realize he wants more for you 
than that. And he wants you to think, rethink your purpose in life and recognize that whatever purpose you discern, if it's not submitted to the ultimate purpose of worshiping Jesus over all things, then it's not a purpose worth living. But it can be if you'll just submit it to him. So you don't have to go get a different job. You don't have to go to seminary or go into the mission field or go to, the, to Africa. Or, you just do what you're doing to the glory of God wherever you are right now. And you can fall right into line like Alfred Nobel did. But further, not just to an idea, not just to what people think, but to what God thinks. Let's pray. Lord God, as we, um, as we leave this place, um, we sing songs and we, re- we, we want to deal with you right now because you're dealing with us and we need to be honest with ourselves some of us are not living to worship Jesus at all we go to church but we don't worship Jesus we sing songs but we don't live our lives in orbit around Jesus not consistently it's not really even on our minds very often because it just seems so religious and so whatever Lord, I hope that by now that you've convinced us in our minds and in our hearts that there is nothing more worth our time than to worship Jesus with our lips and with our lives 24-7, that all we do would be to the glory of God. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think would be done to the glory of God. Lord, may we repent even now of not doing that. I repent of not doing that. And I praise you and thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to purify us. And I cling to that verse, and I believe that you cleanse me and fill me. And and Lord, I pray, come Holy Spirit, fill us up, Lord, with your spirit that we might walk in that bright linen clothing that is the covering that gives us the power to live out righteous acts that glorify you and please you as we prepare to be your bride forever. That's a feast I don't want to miss and a feast I want to never end. Thank you that the best is yet to come. Thank you that you are truly worthy, that you sent Jesus for us. He died for us so that we could live for him. Thank you in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.